Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. This season, most of our episodes highlighted varied experiences of individuals who share a specific element of identity, such as race, culture, or gender. This week and next week, we're going to be dealing with a specific subject that impacts people of all identities, sports. Sports are ubiquitous and they're everywhere. Everyone can tell you a story about an athlete. Everyone has a story about whether they hated the football team or whether they hated the cheerleaders or whether they loved some boy on the baseball team. Everyone has a story or a connection. And so I tell people in my field that sports tell us a larger sociopolitical truth that is worthy of investigation, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not. That was Jordan Kiesler, a graduate student at Georgia State University, whose exploration of the complex relationships between sports policies and identity, with a specific focus on gender, race, and culture, illuminates systemic and structural inequities within sports. Their thesis, tentatively titled Put Me In Coach, The Phenomenology of Transmasculine NCAA Athletes' Gender, examines the simultaneous visibility and invisibility of trans folks in athletics. Jordan's insights about this important subject extend beyond their research and are informed by their experiences as a trans athlete who, in college, was affirmed on their cross-country team and subjected to active aggression on that same college's softball team. We'll return to Jordan's specific experiences later, but I think it's essential to acknowledge that in America and elsewhere, athletes are subject to the same inequities and power dynamics as in other industries, and that these inequities lead to disparities in everything from personal safety to salaries. Although many barriers have been and are being broken down, minority athletes and minorities who work in the athletic industry face struggles that stem from racism, classism, genderism, ableism, ageism, and many other isms and phobias. As of today, male athletes, on average, make anywhere from 15% to 100% more than their female counterparts. And transgender athletes are experiencing such rampant discrimination and exclusion that they can't even begin to tackle wage inequities because they're fighting for the right to play at all. As of 2018, the three biggest U.S. sports leagues, the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball, had only six people of color as principal owners. By sharing the stories of those who have intimate knowledge of athletics from the inside, we hope to promote a different experience, one that goes beyond consumerism to explore the culture of athleticism in America. Hi listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question Or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Bilkis Abdul Qadir, a black Muslim basketball player, has become a national and international icon, recognized as the first Muslim woman in NCAA history to play covered. The innovator behind the campaign Muslim Girls Hoop 2, Bilkis has devoted her career to encouraging Muslim girls to play sports and openly express their faith. A passionate athlete from her earliest memories, Bilkis scored 3,070 points over her high school career, setting the all-time scoring record for the entire state of Massachusetts, then went on to attend the University of Memphis and later Indiana State University, where in addition to her on-the-court achievements, she was a Dean's List student. 
But her career aspirations of playing professional basketball were forever denied as a direct result of religious discrimination. Shortly after I finished my senior season at Indiana State, the goal is to kind of get scouted by an agent. The agent, you know, speaks for you, um, tries to get you the best contract that they can find overseas, especially as a rookie. And one day she just, you know, reached out and said that FIBA has this rule against certain headgear. So I'm like, okay. At first I'm like, I'm a Muslim, so I might wear my hijab. I've been doing it in NCAA basketball for the past four or five years. I probably just need to sign a waiver. That's how it was when I played in high school, how it was when I played in college. And I assumed that's what it was going to be like at the pro level. And when we just, you know, simply responded with, or, or sent off an email to FIBA, just checking to see if, I was going to be okay. They respond back saying, oh, we want to keep everything religiously neutral. And then I'm like, okay, well, you know, we had to think about it for a second. But if that's the case, then people or players with biblical scriptures or of like tattoos of their, you know, religious beliefs. I mean, people have huge different things. People wear chains of, you know, different symbols. And I'm like, well, they should have to cover their tattoos up if you want to keep everything religious. We're just trying to find you know, something to kind of counter. And so when we said that, you know, we wrote FIBA back with that, they say, oh, well, it's really a a safety hazard or a safety risk, whatever they want to call it. You can cause injury to others with your scarf. That's when I realized that it wasn't going to be that easy to get around. So when you throw safety into sport, it's hard to battle that. FIBA regulations banned Bill Keese from playing a sport she loved as a hijabi woman. Although she fought FIBA and eventually won, she didn't ever get to have a professional basketball career. Why? Because athletes, especially those whose bodies might one day carry and bear children, are regularly and systemically subjected to ageism. As a female athlete, we're always against time. You know, it's different for men. And it's unfair, but it is what it is. You know, it is something you just can't change. So when they say, oh, you know, how old are you? And you're 26, 27, you're a rookie. They're like, absolutely not. You know, because now we're close to maybe getting married or we're close to wanting to have babies or and nobody wants to bet on that. So here I am battling not only time, my faith, my identity, this, that, and the third. And you just, it was so uncertain. So I knew that, okay, maybe if I can sit out this year, train, be prepped to play this next season, continue to play in like little rec leagues or just get filmed so that I could, you know, send it off when the time came. The time never came. Many athletes who hold underrepresented identities are both hyper-visible and overlooked at the same time. And this can be complicated and can lead to a simultaneous experience of pain and pride. For example, Natalie Fahey, a lifelong athlete who transitioned during her collegiate swimming career at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, told me that as the first openly transgender woman to swim at the Division I level, she mostly felt loved, accepted, and affirmed. But there were also hurtful moments. All in all, as a whole, great experience. But yeah, I mean, there, there were a few negative experiences. In terms of my experiences on the team, the only thing I had, one of my closer friends at the time, he was on the men's team. When I came out, he kind of started to distance himself from me a little bit. And so during senior year, yeah, during senior year, after texting him to hang out and he just didn't respond, I we only lived a couple apartments down from each other. I kind of I just walked into his apartment because I knew his door was unlocked during the day and walked into his room and was like, dude, we need to fucking talk. Um, I was like, what's going on? And he just kind of fed me some bullshit. And I was like, is this because I came out? Like, are you just uncomfortable with me? He's like, yeah. I was like, all right. And I just walked out. And I didn't talk to him ever again. That was a little tough. We were pretty close. And to lose him as a friend like that was tough, especially the way he went about it. I wasn't a huge fan of. And then, of course, when I had various articles that came out at various points, there was a bit of online backlash. But all in all, in terms of 
the the team, that was the only negative experience I had had. I mentioned earlier that Jordan Kiesler experienced outright violence as a trans athlete. I had like someone physically tried to assault me. Oh my God. Yeah. It was like the most extreme thing that I faced. And it was after like a verbal assault towards me in which someone like referenced my like genitalia and was like, I don't care what this person says that they are like, I don't give a shit and was like threatening my, my personhood. And so it ended up getting reported. And when the teammate found out that it had been reported, the teammate confronted me after a practice in front of everybody and everyone just stood and watched. As you might imagine, there were a host of painful ramifications of having been verbally and physically assaulted by a teammate, only to be unprotected by others with whom you share a jersey, a locker room, and supposedly a sense of camaraderie. That was my sophomore year, um, or my sophomore season. It was the middle of season. I ended up um, not traveling the following week, and I didn't go to practice because I was in the process of filing a restraining order. And the admin were like, I don't understand why this is an issue. And it's like, I have to sit on a bus with somebody for eight hours and then share a hotel. I was like, you're missing the point here. So I ended up missing two games and then a week's worth of practice for my own, like, safety and salt, like, sanity, practically. And I got through the season and the following, the student ended up transferring So I didn't have to deal with the student or the teammate the following season. But the legacy of what had happened the previous season followed into the fall. First years had questions. There was a lot of just like confusion about what my role was then on the team as a senior. um, Because I graduated in three years. So it was my last year playing. And it just resulted in a lot of tension. And I was like, I'm really just here to finish this season so that I can get my jersey framed and hope that these 20 years of playing meant something. So what did it do to your relationship with the sport to have these experiences? Oh, I hated it. I hated softball by the end. It wasn't until I started coaching after college that I was like, oh, this is why I love the sport. But yeah, it ruined my college experience with sports. Take for us to fight it To realize that we all are one Make unity an inner peace The only reason Cause we need better Need so much better We deserve better The athletes we spoke with in preparation for this episode talked about how in being themselves, doing what they love, they often felt at risk. For instance, Carla Terosian, a record-setting Blackfeet female powerlifter who grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation in Browning, Montana, told me about how her all-Indigenous high school basketball team was the target of other people's bias and aggression. I remember one situation where we came out and our entire team bus was egged. Oh, and my God. Yeah, so that school has always had issues with our school and egging our bus or calling us different names or, you know, just really awful derogatory names that obviously those and their children were just children playing out there. And, you know, I was only just a sophomore in high school and that happened. And so it was kind of a situation where it was like, really, that's how it is, you know, off our reservation, because in our reservation, we can protect each other. We can we can watch out for one another. Carla told me that her experiences have differed based on the sport and the environment. She still stands out, but in powerlifting, she feels a greater sense of welcome from spectators, even one she'd expect not to approve of her indigenous identity. You know, the color of my skin definitely stands out and my tallness and everything about me, I guess, stands out. 
And so walking into this, I was like, okay, I already know that I'm going to stand out physically. How am I going to stand out athletically? And how am I going to get people to recognize that, hey, indigenous people work just as hard as other people? And sometimes in some situations, we have to work harder than other races. And, you know, not even a hundred years ago, we were even considered citizens. So, I mean, just a few generations ago, it was like, hey, our, our grandparents, our great-grandparents were in boarding schools. And that plays a huge role in how we perceive ourselves as far as identity and trying to live in two different worlds, like our cultural world and our mainstream society world. The That's difficult. That's even a balance in between, like remaining who you are and knowing that you're different and walking into say, a gym, a powerlifting gym, and being comfortable enough to say, hey, yeah, this is where I belong to. So it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of drive and it takes a lot of understanding of yourself to just to do it, to go in there and know that no matter what, no matter if your skin's different or if you stand out physically, that mentally you're able to take on whatever anyone might say to you or anything like that. And Powerlifting, I got to say this, I've never encountered a non-native making me feel uncomfortable. And I've been around all kinds of different people, you know, all kinds of different races, all kinds of different beliefs. One of the things, one of the situations, you know, with the Trump, and I kind of hate to say this, but the mega hat. So the first powerlifting meet that I went to, there was a guy with a mega hat. And he was sitting front row. And I was thinking, oh, no, you know, he's going to laugh at me. And, you know, I'm wearing this tight little thing and I'm tall. And, <laughs> you know, I'm still trying to get used to all this. And when I finished my first squat, he was clapping for me. Carla's experience was not unusual. Every day, those who hold deep-seated biases against members of certain races, religions, ethnicities, cultures, and genders set their biases aside to cheer athletes to victory. But that's not always the case. As far as playing in leagues, there was no roadblocks. However, I did face discrimination or, you know, racial slurs or religious slurs being kind of screamed at me at basketball games. And those were all, I would say, roadblocks because it would make me question, like, do I want to do this every time I step out on the court? You know, do I want to be stared at or be laughed at? Of course, I use that as energy to play even harder, you know, kind of as fuel to do what I had to do for my team, to, to prove to these people in the stands that I can wear what I wear. If I can ball, then it is what it is, you know? So... I did find beauty in that because people who were, you know, making fun or, you know, kind of like, who is, why she have these clothes on? I was able to educate them just by being good at basketball, you know? So these same people that were making fun of me were the same people that would come up to me after the game and ask questions about why are you wearing that? You know, what's your religion? And it was crazy that people really had no idea about Islam or Muslim women. It was really me finding the beauty in those roadblocks and in those struggles. And again, the first true roadblock was when I was trying to play professional. That was the true test. Danielle Evans, Miss Brighton 2021, a pageant queen and rugby player, has found support and strength in inviting others to test her and in testing them in return. When I took my year out of rugby to compete in, in the pageants, I thought, right, I want to make a stance here. I want to set. So I set up the Try Me campaign. And it all started, the name came from, oh, try me with your stereotypes. She's like, go on, try me. But that was the mindset behind it. It was like, come on, bring it on. Bring on these negative stereotypes you have about me. Bring, bring it on. And it blew up. Honestly, it was amazing. In its first two months, it reached over 60,000 people just organically with no paid advertising, nothing. It was all through word of mouth. Honestly, so humbling that I had so much support for it. But it was all about breaking stereotypes. Breaking stereotypes is something a lot of athletes who hold marginalized identities find themselves doing, whether or not they opted in to a try-me approach. Because there's no way for them to do what they love without bumping up against barriers and biases. 
Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity, or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Here is Mickey Grace, who you may have seen in the ESPN documentary, We Could Be King. Being a female in football is really not that difficult. It's just, it takes longer to convince other people that you are talented or skilled or whatever it is, like whatever you're trying to do or convince people, like it just takes longer to do that. And it's not even just because I'm a girl, it's just because I look the most different than the people in charge because the people in charge are white men. And so when it comes to black men, they can, they're males, right? They can like, there's some common ground, the wife, the kids, blah, blah, blah. Like there's some camaraderie that that can fit in. And even with white women, there's even, there's like a race camaraderie that they can fit find and figure out or women that are a part of the LGBTQ community. Like there's some common ground. I am the most different from every person in charge. Like I am a black woman who is completely feminine, who has a daughter. So For me, it takes me longer to convince people of what those other two groups of people can convince the men easier or in a shorter amount of time. It still sucks that we're all sitting here convincing these people, this one group, but it just takes me a lot longer. And so that fight, the longevity of that, it's really difficult to maintain because that means a lot of times I'm taking volunteer positions and unpaid positions. And that means I have actually never, I've been coaching football for 10 years. And that's probably the longest I've known anyone besides Lori Lucas, who is the assistant defensive line coach at the Buccaneers. I'm one of the people who are still in football and have been doing it the longest. And I still have yet to be in a role that I can be just in that role. Like I don't also have to have a full-time job. I don't also have to like find another way to facilitate like finances. I have always had to do football, full-time football, 
and full time something else to maintain that. And so that's really what that's why people like give up in the fight, because people usually can't maintain for a decade of their life not being paid and going to fly places yourself and learn and build connections and just like use tapping in resources and sleeping on couches and in your car. Like a lot of people can't deal with that for long periods of time. And it's really easy to give up because no one notices. Also, if you stop, no one will notice. In 2009, Mickey started her football journey as an all-city defensive end at Germantown High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She then went on to play Division I women's rugby at Westchester University. Since making the transition from player to coach, she has served as the acting head coach of Women's Football Alliance Philadelphia team, the Philly Phantoms, and still holds a seat on the board. In the offseason, Coach Mickey trains numerous elite athletes, including seven Super Bowl champions. She spent five years as the defensive line and assistant coach at Mastery Charter North Football Program, interned for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and acted as a scouting apprentice for the L.A. Rams. Currently, Mickey Grace is the defensive assistant for Dartmouth College. In her interview with Zach, Mickey spoke about how it feels to be in the sports world as a person who exists on the margins, something with which Zach himself is infinitely familiar, as a Black man who worked within the sports industry for well over a decade. No doubt you'll have heard us share about Zach's role as a partner in the Demystifying Diversity podcast, but prior to that and prior to forming Rebel Hill Consulting, where he serves as CEO, Zach was a 12-year veteran of the sports and entertainment industry. After graduating from Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, Zach rose up the ranks from a ticket sales representative to a premium all-access manager with the Brooklyn Nets franchise. And still today, he produces a variety of content and shows featuring former and current professional athletes. One of the, the main barriers that, you know, I witnessed and had to deal with was there's kind of a... I wouldn't quite call it a good old boys club, but there is an atmosphere of kinship and friendship that occurs on sales teams and groups that the majority is typically white male. So the things that they like to do and the jokes that they like to say and all of that really circles around that community and that group. So I kind of was like on my own a lot, which wasn't a great feeling when I also was in a city that I'm not from and I don't have family like. I was hoping for more camaraderie and it it eventually does grow to some extent, but it grew easily when I was being a little bit more adaptive to speaking a different way and, you know, trying, you know, above normal levels to blend in and be a part of the crew. It wasn't a natural thing for me. So, you know, I kind of had to do what I had to do to try to make it a little bit more of a suitable environment and to get along with more folks. But I could tell right off the bat from my colleagues who were the colleagues who grew up hanging around black folk and who were the colleagues that I was probably the closest black person they've ever been to and kind of had to move with those sorts of things conscious in my mind on a regular basis to know what I should say, shouldn't say, even when it comes to attire. For the most part, we were always shirt and tie, but like I wouldn't really go too far out the box because I didn't want that extra level of judgment. And it, it took me a couple of years to work in the profession to get to the point where I didn't care because I knew my skill set and I knew that they're not going to fire me because of this. You know, I can kind of be myself a little bit more because I cared more about my relationship with my clients and my season ticket holders than I did with my coworkers. So I had to grow into that. It wasn't a natural thing. Some people will call it code switching. Not everyone can do that. It was something that I was cognizant of. I had to be aware of it, which puts more stress on your day to day. It hurts you from performing at your best because you're focused on something else that you shouldn't have to focus on. When you're a minority, systems that aren't built to include you can be weaponized against you in active ways or can give a passive impression that you don't belong or make you feel tokenized and objectified. And that can erode a person's sense of self. I asked Carla what she wants to see for herself and other Indigenous athletes. I think confidence. I think that's across the board for everything that we do that involves 
any any effort, I guess, any physical or mental effort, and they go hand in hand, I would say confidence because a lot of women, and I speak for women because I'm a woman, and going into something that can be intimidating, such as powerlifting, you know, if somebody lifts more than you, obviously that's, that's on the back of your mind, like, hey, God, I'm intimidated, you know, by these people. But having that confidence, it's like, you know, I can get there. I can get there too. I can, you know, I can lift that too. And so I think that's one thing that all Native people struggle with is confidence and having the courage to really walk into any place or any event or any sport, knowing that even though they bring the diversity there, that it's important for them to secure their confidence in the room as well or on the court or on the platform or whatever it may be that, hey, you know, we don't have to be boastful, but we're not any less than anybody else just because we're Indigenous or just because we come from disadvantaged backgrounds or because of our history of having our identity stripped away. Let's go out and be confident in what we do and how we do it. It can be difficult to exhibit confidence when you're up against structures that you can't and shouldn't have to fit into. Here's Jordan again. Sports in their origins, at least in the U.S., are a white nationalist project. It was a way to develop the ideal man into uh, a soldier and to prepare them for serving their country. And so there are lots of ways that particularly raced and sex and gendered ideals come up out of sports. We can see that in the way that the Black women in the Olympics have not been able to get swim caps that fit their natural hair. We can see that in the way that uh, Namibian runners Christine Mobamba and Patrice Masolini could not run in their events because they have unnatural testosterone levels for cis women. And we have seen this long through with Castor Semenya and Duti Chan's cases against the Olympics and the running federations that they participate in. So these these things have implications beyond just whether can trans athletes play on high school sports. They impact the way that Black women in particular are able to access athletics on an international level. But there's a lot of nitty gritty that gets into that. Zach made the same point in a slightly different way. I think being white in this country is the standard. So anything else, not to say that it's worse or not, it's different. White Mm -hmm. is being the baseline. So that's why they didn't have to worry about anything because they were the baseline. So because I was black and not the normal sales guy, I had to do more. I had to do things different. I had to target different customers. It it had to operate a little differently because I wasn't the normal sales rep. And, you know, again, I think all that's changing over the years, but it wasn't the easiest. Uh, And this was only 10 years ago. In the United States and in many other places, the sports world is structured by white men. And while many sports teams might include visible diversity on the court or the field or the track, it's certainly not typically reflected in ownership. Former Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Anna Marie Jones sat down with Trevor Baptiste, a Haitian-American professional lacrosse player and face-off specialist who plays for both the Premier Lacrosse League and the National Lacrosse League, to talk about his perspectives on the way in which sports fans have an opportunity to intervene against racism if they choose to engage with the issue. That privilege and that, and that white privilege, when you break it down, a lot of people's heads, they feel like, oh, well, like if I admit this, then, then I'm saying that this is my fault, that this is all going on. And to be clear, like, it's not necessarily your fault. Like, don't be like, you know, slavery and all this injustice is happening because of you. That's not the case. You know, it's because of maybe other people that are just have bad morals, you know, But you admitting it is basically breaking down the whole ideology and the whole vehicle that this racial injustice goes through, you know, and just admitting to it is all it is, you know, is is that you're you're breaking down this whole structure that's been built, this systematic racism, like you're breaking down the system. But a lot of people take that as you know, like if I say that, then the people are going to think that I'm racist or like, and then 
it's going to make it seem like all this is happening because of me, but it's not. And like, that's like, well, people got to understand that's what everybody gets on edge. You know, like it's my fault and it's nobody's fault that, that it happened except for those that are directly responsible and that it is happening except for those that are directly responsible and racist, but it's all of our responsibilities to make sure that it stops happening. I mentioned earlier that ownership in professional athletics is predominantly white, rich, and male. This means that those who aren't any of those things have different experiences and different access than those who are. In sports, we're constantly told to be aware of where our bodies are. We're acutely aware of how we occupy space in the space that we do not occupy. We are constantly thinking about our bodies. We're constantly thinking about the relationship between our mind and our mental game and our physical game and pushing our bodies to extreme limits. For trans folks, we're told that our experience is always a discongruence with the body, that we are not allowed to inhabit our body fully because for some reason it is wrong. It is not what we want. And so to be a trans athlete, right, is to live in this dichotomy where you're constantly told by society that trans people hate their bodies, where in sports you're told to have an acute relationship with their body. And for some trans folks, they do have a, an extreme discongruence and some don't. But what, what does it mean then when you are told you have to inhabit something you, just, you have disdain for? Or what does it mean when you are told that you should have disdain, but you find such joy and excitement in being able to know exactly how to move your body in ways in which you don't even think about? You're like, this is just natural movement that I've trained my body over and over and over again to do and is, is second nature. And so for trans folks, for me, at least, I think sports provides a way to allow us to inhabit our bodies and have bodily awareness and autonomy in ways that we are not granted by medical professionals who tell us we have to feel a certain way to get access to healthcare, to government documents, to resources, and any type of determinants of how we are supposed to feel in our bodies is a form of surveillance and control. And athletics tells us we are always in control of ourselves. And so it's just this really interesting dichotomy that trans athletes live in. One thing that I would say is for the most part, and I would say just about every sport outside of every of uh, the major four sports outside of hockey, the majority of the players on the field are black or diverse. I'll say baseball, maybe not be black, but a lot of Hispanics, a lot of Latinos in baseball. And I don't think it, it has to require or mean that that same diversity should be shown in front offices. But I think that there needs to be more diversity in the higher positions in front offices. And I will say that that will change how teams and organizations talk and speak to the media and you know engage on social. It'll have an impact there. And I think a lot of teams from the higher up end say, all right, we're willing to bring in diverse people to a certain level, but like once they get to a, a higher level, they're making decisions. And now that's changing other things. And we don't want to rock the boat too much. And I just don't want organizations to have that mindset. Here is Jeffrey W. Montag, the former associate vice dean of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM, and current director of STHM's alumni engagement. Jeffrey is also the founder of Montague Made Consulting, a company that supports and sustains brand management, strategic and innovative planning in the area of hospitality and sport curriculum development and diversity of thought through group and individual intervention. Jeffrey is also a partner of Real Property Capital United Advisors, a group of investors focusing on property development and investment in hotel development and public and private capitalization. He spoke with Zach about the barriers facing minorities in athletics from the professional level to the collegiate level. Well, the biggest barrier to me, and I'll be direct, was being controlled by white men. I mean, all of these industries have controlled by white men. And then it became just men. But those men included white men and maybe a people of Asian percent um, and very few for African-Americans until the door opened. But I think controlled by white men that did not want to relinquish control and power was a huge barrier, right? 
Even all of the coaches in the NFL and college were white men. So now you're starting to see a change. But even though the Rooney rule in the NFL still does not yield as many African-American head coaches as it should, that's still controlled by white men, white billionaires, people that have the money, and those people that follow that kind of mindset that we're going to control everything. Now, when you talk about what needs to be done, my first, not just because I'm an, a person from an academic background, but I think it's education. But I'm talking before college. All these kids, they either want to be in entertainment, rapping, music, whatever, or they want to play a sport. Well, to get the sport, you got to play college ball. You should. So the education needs to start early on, middle school, high school, about here's what it takes to get to this level and educate these people, including the parents that all of this works in tandem to be the best. You can't be a general manager of any team if you don't know accounting and finance. So if you don't get that education, then you're fooling yourself and you lose money and you don't get opportunity. So that's what I think can be done. It's the education and these college programs out here, they really need to focus on things that are not only textbook proficient, but practical learning experience. Practical learning experience is a lot harder to come by in the absence of effective and invested allyship. And how does a person gain insider knowledge when engaging in an industry that is designed to keep them on the outside? Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1964 during the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement, Bo Dean Sanders, the author of Race Against Against Race, My Journey of Diversity and Inclusion Through Sports, was raised in the shadow of segregation. He grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood, played sports on entirely Black teams with Black coaches, and attended majority Black schools all the way until Cheney University, until he was recruited to play football at Villanova. I grew up in an environment where you're Black and they're white. That's it. So when you grow up with that limited experience and understanding of differences between people, right, that's where you are deficient in the knowledge and and information that you will have, which can hurt your decision-making. That's not to say that white people or wealthy people or white and wealthy people with access to ownership have all the answers. Not at all. It's simply to say that diversity, by which I mean the effective inclusion of a variety of identities, can be instrumental to changing hearts and minds for the better. Uplifting environments of mutual education, trust, and respect can go a long way towards dismantling many isms and phobias. For instance, Rick Beardsley, four-time All-American defenseman and lifelong lacrosse player turned coach, shared about how he learned from Trevor Baptiste that some of his own attitudes and previous comments were unintentionally insensitive and invalidating. I was listening to Trevor Baptiste, who lived down by you in Philly, who just moved out to Denver, who was a player for our Atlas, our pro team. And um, the PLL has been very vocal in Black Lives Matter. And we have not many African-American lacrosse players, not many black players, but I happen to have the best face-off man in the world is Trevor Baptiste, and he's black. He's from New Jersey, from northern New Jersey. And Trevor spoke, and he's never spoken up. So, like, you have very similar backgrounds with Trevor of you coming from an area that has is very affluent, very white, right, very educated, 
okay? And everybody around you is very white. And all your friends were white, and his friends were. And he spoke up, and he said something three weeks ago that resonated in my mind and prompted me to call him because he said something that I used to probably say in high school, and I think I've said a hundred times, probably more than a hundred times, not realizing it. Ah, you know, he's not black. He's he's like us. You're you're not black. You're you're you know you're you're like you're whiter than us. And that's wrong for anyone to say because who are we? Who was I to say that when I said that to whoever I may have said it to? Because I definitely have, right? Who am I to say? How, how do I know if that didn't hurt them, even though it didn't seem like it was hurting, it hurt them. When Trevor had said what he said, you know, you know, bothered me growing up that my friends would say that to me and my white friends would say that to me. I called him. I said to Trevor, Trev, you know, what you said to me really hit home. And I wanted to say thank you because I never realized until now how those words would probably hurt anybody who's ever heard them. So saying that because, I don't, that you're just... Yeah, like, you're like, you're like, than me. Yeah, like, you know, when you say it in jest, you know, but you forget right. saying certain things in jest can affect you. And also, you can't take back what you say. Here's Trevor recalling that same experience. I've come out publicly and said that those types of words can be offensive to somebody like me and people like me. And But no, I th- he was just saying that he just doesn't see color and that... He, you know, he looks at people just as people, which is great. And uh, I think he's not lying in that sense. Like he basically all he was trying to say was that he isn't going to treat anybody differently depending on the way that they look. But it could come off as a little bit insensitive because, you know, obviously being African-American in America, there's a lot of things that come with that, you know, so just almost neglecting to recognize that could be just a sore subject for some people. But with anything, you know, you got to know where people's hearts are when they talk and, and who they are. So although he maybe didn't say something exactly correct, like I know where his heart is, you know, and I know what he's trying to say. So I, I it did make me rethink of who he was as a person, you know, because I was already pretty firm on who I know Rick is. Whether our hearts are in the right place or not, it's important to show up and own when we make mistakes and to be invested in taking constructive action. Because there's a lot of harm occurring within the seemingly sacred spaces of sports. Anna Marie asked Trevor about his worst moment as a Haitian American lacrosse player. I mean, I've had a few, but uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give you two. So what I would just say would just be flat out racism, you know, just people trying to get under your skin or, or get into your game or denounce you because I'm black, basically, <laughs> which that is always extremely frustrating because it just seems so low. And, you know, like, I don't, like, I don't mind people talking smack, you know, like that's all part of the game, but, you know, to go to that level, whether that's, necessarily how you feel or to try to get the best of me you know it's just that's extremely frustrating and then I'd say just like more currently with this year just how I think a lot of people looked at this whole racial injustice as a political idea and just I guess obviously with the league taking the Black Lives Matter approach, just seeing how people just really didn't want to do it. And they were like really vocal to me about that. And, you know, it's, it, it just seems like this whole thing is a political argument. And there's really nothing political about it in the objective sense. But people make it political. You know, <laughs> people make it political. And, and it's just not. It's just, it's a humanitarian issue. And that's it. If you can't see that, then that's what's going on in your mind, you know? So that was frustrating for me, you know, just having guys on my team and teammates and people that I was friends with on other teams that just didn't want to get behind it. And that was just, it was definitely like, it was a lot more hurtful than I, than I thought it would be, you know? 
Sometimes hurt comes from what we experience, and sometimes it comes from what we're denied the ability to experience, or the ways people treat us. Here's Danielle Evans again. Even, I mean, the stereotypes that I faced, though, when I said I was playing rugby, even from the men's teams, you know, they were saying, oh, so are you lesbian? And I'm like, well, no. Why do I have to be lesbian to play? And they said, oh, well, do you play real rugby? Do you play contact sport? It's a bit like your American football. You know, they say, oh, do you play full contact? Can you run? Do you actually play real rugby? Well, of course we do. We don't play any different to the men's. What difference is it going to make that I'm a woman? Rugby is rugby. (laughs) Right, so you're facing the stereotypes for men. Absolutely, yeah. And to be fair, some women as well. I mean, those who didn't obviously weren't in the rugby community, they would have some questions. They'd go, oh, you know, is rugby that you don't look like you'd be a rugby player? Well, well, why not? What's a rugby player meant to look like? And I said, oh, well, they're meant to be very masculine. And because stereotypically, the female rugby player is seen as quite, quite butch, quite aggressive, quite manly, that we're not approachable, that all we drink is alcohol. And we're all, well, we're not. I've met some of the nicest people playing rugby. And from all different walks of life. Rugby is for everybody. And that is something that I feel is really important to stress. Don't get me wrong. We still have a long way to go in terms of females in sport. So like we have the Six Nations going on at the moment and the men's teams all were really widely publicised on the main channels. But here, female rugby, the women's rugby teams, sorry, were broadcast on the not so big channels. They actually played, they actually, instead of the female um, game, uh, when was it, at the weekend, they ended up playing some old flog it auction show instead of the, the women's game. Here's Jeffrey Montag again. Even though there are some schools and colleges around the nation that may have had programs for many, many decades, maybe some programs have been around 100 years. But at that time, minorities weren't going to these Big Ten schools. They weren't going to the Ivy League schools. We weren't recruited unless you were an athlete to go to these major league schools. So at one point, when most of the people like myself that was a playground legend and then ended up playing football and basketball in college at an HBCU, that was the only place I could go to play. So what happened is we decided that if we couldn't make the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, hockey, whatever, there was no hockey rinks in my neighborhood, by the way, But, you know, when we couldn't play the game at the superior level, there had to be opportunities within the industry that we could jump into. And I think that all of the major league sports realized that. The one sport that had known it for years was football, meaning not American football, but soccer, which is football in other countries, right? So there they realized that our talent was not only on the field, it was also in sales and marketing and other potential areas of, I guess, departments, or you could say. And the industry started to shift to say, wow, we can open up these opportunities for people of color, which excluded women for a long time, especially in professional sports. So women started getting involved. And then that glass ceiling has been shattered and open for a lot of people to get involved I'm not sure that when it comes to athletics, glass ceilings have been shattered. I see it more like cracks in the glass. And for that, we can thank those who have gone before and created a path for others to follow. But if you want to talk about lacrosse needing more black players, absolutely. They do. We need more races to play the sport. How do you scout for that? What could be? I don't know. I think the key is, is doing more of what City lacrosse is doing, Harlem lacrosse is doing, uh, Eric Law out in, uh, you know, in Denver, what they're doing with City Lacs, what uh, the guy was doing with City Lacs in Stanford, in Bridgeport, is just trying to get it more and more to those areas that can't afford it. Right. And you are right. Lacrosse, it's that one sport that has that, you know, stigma that it's a rich, blue blood sport and you only get better if you have money. And that's untrue because I'm, I'm proof. My father never made over 60,000 bucks and I'm one of the greatest lacrosse players ever lived. Yeah. And, and, and if I was playing in this generation, I'd still be one of the best lacrosse players that ever lived. 
I grew up in an era playing football where it was allowed a coach to grab you by your face mask, pull you in and yell at you to get you to learn something because that's how that's how sports mm -hmm. is. Right. But I never had a white coach grab my face mask, pull me in and yell at me. That's what I had to get used to. And you throw in the mix me being from the former Southern Confederate South. Or as in my book, I write the Jim Coward, not Jim Crow, Jim Coward South. And here's the powerful statement. I had to evolve and give my white coach the same level of respect I gave my black coaches in my past. Once I was able to give him the same level of respect that I gave my black coaches who did the exact same thing, yelled at me, pulled my face mask, then I was able to allow him to coach me because his job was to coach me and make me a better player. Those who are willing to be the first or the only person of a certain identity or who have the inner strength to continue to persevere in the face of other people's misconceptions invariably do so for three reasons. They love their sport and don't want to give it up. They are who they are and refuse to pretend to be otherwise. And they care about those coming up behind them. Here's Natalie again. The battle that I had for so long was what's going to be harder for me? Is it going to be harder for me to muscle through a year and a half of swimming as my inauthentic self? Or is it going to be harder for me to struggle through swimming while transitioning and doing so publicly? Bill Keese told me that she wasn't originally certain whether she'd choose to be true to her faith or to her dreams of professional basketball, and she didn't know she'd become a trailblazer for others, but that it was God who brought her to her current passion and purpose. I remember hated how I was feeling. Like I honestly felt like I was in a dark place. And the only thing, you know, that I knew to do was, you know, really pray at that point. Regardless of me questioning faith, I knew that I believed you know, in God, I believe that faith mattered. Although I was questioning, you know, even Islam or being a Muslim, I was like, let me pray to figure out why I'm feeling like this and how to get out of this rut, figure out what my purpose was. Because without basketball, I was like, what is life, you know? So I remember praying this specific prayer. And, you know, as Muslims, we pray five times a day. And it was funny because as much as I was questioning my faith, the only way I knew how to pray was like as a Muslim, right? So I always kind of talk about this prayer because this is what kind of showed me my why. And so I'm praying this prayer and, you know, there's the position where we put our head to the floor. And we believe that you're in full submission when you have your head to the floor. You're like, you're, you know, you're in a vulnerable state. And so in that position is where we should basically give it all to God in a way, you know, you're being thankful, you're asking for what you need, whatever. And I just knew that I was in a place in life where I needed that guidance. You know, I needed spiritual guidance. I was tired of getting advice from people because people just weren't doing it for me at the time. Um, nobody could say the right thing. Nothing that was going on was good. And so I remember, you know, being in this prayer and really just like, I guess the first time in my life, feeling a prayer. I've been praying my whole life, you know, and I never went in with it with intentions of actually needing God. And I say that because everything in my life pretty much came easy. I was almost like born with this talent on the playing basketball. I was good at it. I got the scholarship that I wanted. I made my parents proud. I made my city proud and everything was just so easy. And then boom, I get tested with something that I love the most. And I feel like for me, it was God having me choose faith or almost like material world. And so in that prayer, I felt like something in my heart turned and it was, you know, it was a feeling that I can't even describe. And soon after this prayer, I don't know how many days after, if it was a week, it was a couple of days, I get called to do my first speaking engagement at a Sunday school in Indiana, because that's where I was. And they emailed my head coach, and they say, we heard about Bill Keys. We know she's in Indiana. We want her to come speak to our students because we learned about her being a basketball player. So I'm like, why do these people want me to come? Like, I'm a rip to pieces. Like, I'm not even a whole person. Like, what am I going to say to these kids? And I remember this like it was yesterday. 
in front of these kids and them all looking at me like I'm just some famous person. And they're just, we want to be just like you. Thank you. I'm going to play basketball too. And I'm like, I remember that first speech just kind of opening my eyes a bit. Like I can't say all of these cliche phrases, you know, be yourself. Don't let anybody. And I was not living up to what I was speaking, you know, and I was almost like being a hypocrite. And so I knew that I had to make a change. And I swear, I felt like after that prayer, God was sending me to these places to, to help find myself and my true purpose. And I was called to do another speaking engagement. Then I was asked to do a youth camp, basketball, teach girls. And I was like, okay, I can't ignore this. And that's what gave me that trajectory in a positive, di- you know, in a positive direction. Bilkis found her support system in God when she was at the lowest point in her life. Natalie found that it was people who saved her. If you hadn't had a support system, where do you think you'd be right now? Probably in the ground. Can you say more about that? I've got a tattoo on my ribs. I'm very nerdy. It is, I'm replacing 42 with swimming. 42 in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is quoted as the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Swimming saved my life multiple times. But I think without a support system and without transitioning, it would have ended it as well. If I didn't transition while I swam, and if I didn't have the support system I had, I don't think I would have graduated. That's not hyperbole. Trans athletes are more likely than their non-trans peers to die of suicide, just as Black athletes are more at risk than their white counterparts. Those who make it through have allies, and that's true whether they're players or whether their work in sports occurs behind the scenes. In the world of athletics, there's a lot of ingenuity, sacrifice, and struggle that goes into overcoming discrimination, and it helps to be part of a team. I don't necessarily mean a sports team, although those can be wonderful. I mean having people on your side who are committed to your growth and development, who have your back and who exist shoulder to shoulder with you while honoring your unique contributions as an integral part of a larger collective. Here's what Carla had to say about being an athlete who sees herself both as an individual and part of a larger movement towards increasing access and inclusion for others. I really wanted to be a trailblazer. I'm not afraid to put myself first and break those barriers. So in powerless, I know it's not really a popular sport like basketball and all these other mainstream sports kind of. And I hate to put it like that, but I guess it doesn't really get as much recognition as it would if you were to go to a basketball game. Like, people don't really understand what powerlifting really is about or, honestly, it's something that I was like, okay, nobody's really dabbled in that. I haven't seen much Indigenous people dabble in that. And there is a few, and those few are amazing. They stand out. I went down to DT Nationals, and I met a fellow Indigenous woman, and you should have seen how proud she was of who she was and how she stood out and she said the same about me and it was like a proud moment to see each other just competing and making sure that you know we were supporting each other as well. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or you can visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. 
A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Bodine Sanders, Trevor Baptiste, Mickey Grace, Zach James, Danielle Evans, Jeffrey Montag, Rick Beardsley, Natalie Fahey, Bilkis Abdul-Kadir, Carla Terosian, and Jordan Kiesler. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. This episode includes reporting by Anna Marie Jones. The music you heard is better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.